Talk 1110-993-WBT. Happy first day of school, everybody. I mean, if it is your first day of school, if you're in the surrounding counties that went back to school last week, uh, happy second week of school to you. So, uh, no opinion. Noah Smith. <laughs> I know him by no opinion because that's his Twitter handle. But Noah Smith, he writes his own newsletter called noopinion.substack. Uh, so you can subscribe to it. And this one was free. Uh, but this headline... It's actually a hypothesis developed by a guy named Peter Turchin, and it's called the elite overpopulation hypothesis, the elite overpopulation hypothesis. And uh, the theory goes sort of like this, that our economic and social system was unable to accommodate the expectations of a lot of these uh, kids that went to college in the humanities, majoring in the humanities, and then they expected to join the ranks of the elite. And when they got out of college, they could not because the uh, the job market, when they got out uh, after the Great Recession, it was such that their their skills were not exactly in demand. And so the expectation was provided to them, right, that they would be part of the elite by getting a degree in the humanities. And when they get out, they don't. And that gap, that difference between the expectation and the reality is what drove a lot of them to disruptive behavior, let's say. And what Noah Smith says is that actually uh, caused them to turn to leftist politics, out of frustration and disappointment. And he goes through, he's got charts, so you know it's legit if he's got charts. I mean, come on. He's got charts about the different majors, and you can see how they've all been, uh, the, num- the, the, the just the number of people majoring in these different degree tracks, they're all dropping. Science is above all the humanities now. It passed it somewhere around, looks like 2015. Science majors surpassed all the humanities combined. And the humanities are things like philosophy, language and literature, history, English, religion, right? These types of uh, majors. Science surpassed all of those humanities combined in 2015. And right now, computer science is about to surpass all of the humanities as well. And what does that say? Well, obviously, people want to get good jobs when they get out of college, right? It becomes apparent, he says, why the shift is happening. College kids you know, want majors that are going to lead them directly to secure and or high-paying jobs. And that's why uh, STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and math, right, as well as medical fields, and to, to a lesser degree, though, but still blue-collar job-focused fields like hospitality. These categories, these majors have been on the rise. He goes through the different areas, you know, people, you know, Uh, go into law or they would go into uh, academia or they would go to work for government, right? That was their idea that you get these degrees and this is where it would, would lend you universities though, not even there because they started swapping out a lot of the tenured faculty positions with low paid adjuncts. Well, I mean, you got to pay for the administrators somehow, right? All the DEI specialists. 2008 marked the end of a long boom in government employment as well. K-12, No, not really. That's been a stagnating employment sector after 2008 as well. So all of the traditional career paths that 
these graduates were looking at suffered in the late 2000s and 2010s. And at the same time, there was this giant boom in the number of people studying the humanities prior to 2010. So you have this huge surge of people taking these courses, and then they get out and they meet an employment scenario that cannot fulfill their demands. And so they get career disappointment at exactly the wrong time. They get set up for that. The elite overproduction hypothesis says that this situation produced a combustible social environment that exploded into the unrest of the late 2010s. Well, what was that? What was going on then? Do you remember? Occupy. Right? Bernie Sanders, the rise of this sort of new socialist movement in America. In the 1960s, researchers in sociology and political science applied the concept of the revolution rising expectations to explain not only the attractiveness of communism in many third world countries, but also revolutions in general, like the French, the American, the Russian, and Mexican revolutions. In 1969, John C. Davies used those cases to illustrate his J-curve hypothesis. It's a formal model. It looks at the relationships among rising expectations, their level of satisfaction, and revolutionary upheavals. So you have this higher expectations, uh, higher expectation about things. Are those expectations met? So what's your level of satisfaction? And revolutionary upheavals. And he proposed that revolution is likely when, after a long period of rising expectations accompanied by a parallel increase in their satisfaction, then suddenly a downturn occurs. And when perceptions of need satisfaction decrease, but expectations continue to rise, you have a widening gap that is between expectations and reality, and that gap eventually becomes intolerable, and it sets the stage for rebellion against the social system because the perception is the system has failed to fulfill its promises. Hello, student loan forgiveness? This idea actually harkens back to Alexis de Tocqueville. It's sometimes called the Tocqueville effect, which I admit I was not aware of. Expectations matter. When a trend goes on long enough, people start thinking that there's some sort of structural process underlying that trend. And so they assume the trend is going to continue indefinitely. That makes sense, right? This is uh, the same sort of thing. I mean, you just get, it's the normalcy bias. Uh, there's a little bit of this, um, there's a little bit of this in, you know, in, in uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder and familiarity breeds contempt. Like these types of long running ideas, these are truisms that, well, they're true, right? That's why they're truisms. But like that, that's, that's been understood. And you expect, it's, it, look at the kids with the cell phones and the tablets, Right? The fish doesn't know it's wet. This is their native environment. Once again, that's why Generation X is like the best generation. We have one foot in both worlds. We remember pre-technology and we know what the benefits are uh, of it now. But the kids today do not. And so the expectation is that this is like the, the cell phones and tablets, like this technology, it's going to be around forever. And should be able to do all these things for me. And I give away all of these uh, uh, 
security, you know, pieces of my security and, and, uh, and privacy. And I trade it all off for the ease and the convenience of, you know, being able to get food delivered to my house. Right. There's this expectation that gets driven up. And when the society is unable to fulfill that expectation, the chances of revolution increase. And this has been documented in uh, South and Central American countries that have gone, undergone revolutions, uh, leftist revolutions, but also the American and French revolutions as well. And what happens when it turns out that the good times are not baked into the nature of the universe? Well, suddenly the mediocrity of reality intrudes upon the complacent expectations of eternal upward growth. And at this point, people get quite angry. There's an economist named Miles Kimball, another one named Robert Willis. They got a theory that happiness is just the difference between reality and expectation. They actually came up with a formula for it. <laughs> they did a math formula for it. The difference between reality and expectation. If things are better than you expected, you're happy. If things are worse, you're upset. See, this is why I'm generally a happy guy. I have such low expectations for everything and everyone. I'm always, I'm always happy. I'm not disappointed in anything. All right. <laughs> News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So here is my here's my premise. Here is my call to action. Let's lower our expectations in order to fight leftism. Let's reduce our expectations. Let's say we're just we can't have it all. We're terrible. Nothing's gonna happen to us. Just bad stuff all around. And then this is going to fight leftism. I'm not sure that's actually the best way for it. Maybe some part of that, especially when you're talking to uh, kids, you know, going to college. You're like, hey, um, you know, life is a race against death that we all lose. You know, just heads up. All right, let me go over here to uh, Stan. Hello, Stan. Welcome to the program. How's it going? Uh, it's going pretty good, Pete. How's you doing good? Yeah, I am. I cannot complain. Well, yeah. Well, that's good. I'm, well, I have, I'm going to get a twofer in here. I want to talk with you. Two subjects about education. All right. First, with the, uh, with the uh, government bailing out of the side on student loans, if the government hadn't taken over the loan industry mm -hmm. and it was a, done privately, private industry would not loan money for at $150,000 for an anthropology with a minor in gender studies degree. So you wouldn't have this issue. True. Yeah. Basically, all we've done is just take taxpayer dollars and fund the university endowments, and they're the only ones that won't have to pay. Right. So, and not only did that uh, uh, obviously flow from the decision of the feds to take it over, uh, but also by backstopping and uh, the bankruptcy, you can't discharge through bankruptcy, and so there's there's no moral hazard here. So, uh, right. you could just keep taking out more and more money and offload the risk to taxpayers. Now, there's one other thing about education that's happened locally. And that is the um, uh, the decision to like fail people in their classes if they miss twelve days in any year, regardless if they're excused or not. And but the, the thing I didn't understand is I don't think that that policy is going to be administered based on equity. So why would other policies be? Why would like whether you passed or failed or not be based on equity? Well, I know that there's a similar dynamic that occurs in discipline, which is. Um if you get sent to, the, you know, if you get 
if you get sent to the principal's office, for lack of a better term, uh, you get sent too often, uh, you end up getting suspended. Like you get like three strikes or whatever it is. And the students know that the, the schools do not want to lose the head count. And so because uh, that means they lose the funding. So they don't want the kids to be expelled. So then the teachers won't send them to the principal or the principal won't take them. And you have this sort of perverse incentive at play where the worst kids uh, get left alone to keep behaving badly. That's a problem. So, so, so it's like some things have a zero tolerance policy where it's not based on equity and other things don't. That's the, that's the point. Correct. Right. You are correct. It is because it's different when we do it. That's the, that is the only consistent standard that is at play in America anymore. It's different when I do it. Okay. Uh, it's, Stan, almost, it's almost like what they want to do is they just want to make sure you show up for the indoctrination. They don't get to hang out with your pesky parents to teach you their values. Yeah. Well, it's, and look, and that's why I have very little sympathy for, uh, like, uh, you know, education activists to complain that, you know, oh, I can't believe that, you know, the parents say, uh, they expect us to babysit their kids. Like, well, you know what? When you promise to do that very thing, when you promise to be the surrogate parent for these kids and to teach them all of the things and, and fill all of these roles, did you think people wouldn't take you up on that offer? Of course some people would, you know? Of course they do. Yeah. Stan, I appreciate the call, sir. Take care. All right, buddy. Take it easy. Um, you look at back at the big bump of humanities and how they went – you know, a lot of people got into the uh, into these fields in the early 2000s. And then, of course, the reality was when they get out in another 10 years, uh, now there's uh, now there's a decline in these sectors. So they have this expectation that they're going to be part of the the elite. They're going to be set and then they don't get it. And this gets to what the economists Kimball and Willis, their happiness formula. They formalize the idea with math. Here it is. Happiness equals reality minus expectations. H equals R minus E. <laughs> that's, their, that's their equation. And the problem is like this, this makes for a combustible mix. Growth trends don't continue forever, so people are setting themselves up for disappointment. You can't look at the trend and say this is the way it's always going to be. But people who don't know any different don't know any different. They think it's the norm. It's pretty simple to apply this to the U.S. in the 2010s. You had productivity growth, which had been robust since the early 90s, slowed down sharply around 05. Housing prices plateaued. The economy crashed in the Great Recession. And for elites, especially those on the humanities track, the years after the Great Recession were brutal for a lot of them. The upper middle class is the class in which college graduates typically expect to find themselves. The fact that so many young people flooded into the humanities majors in the 2000s and early 2010s suggests a lot of them expected a double bounty to be able to earn a good income while also having a career that fit their personal interests. And then they didn't get it. And who is asking for all of the, the loan forgiveness now? Right? Those are the people. These are the people. They demand someone else pay the freight because the reality didn't meet their expectations. And to be fair, their expectations were uh, crafted in large part by what they were told by parents and educators and society. But it's a combustible mix. All right, more on this in a minute. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Expectations matter. 
Anyway, you uh, you apply this this concept, the to, uh, Tocqueville effect, or uh, what the economists Kimball and Willis said: happiness equals reality minus expectations. It's one of the things. If you're grateful, if you express get, uh, gratitude, you're generally going to be happier as a person. Just a heads up on that. Um, because if you're, I mean, if you think in terms like what what is the mindset of gratitude? You're recognizing that things could be a lot worse, right? So your expectation is tempered. You apply this to the U.S. in the 2010s. You had the housing prices plateauing, the economy crashes, the elites get kicked in the teeth because you got all their kids going to school, their graduate degrees and all this. And they're like, we're so going to be in the elite class. And then they get out and like, nope, you're not making any money. Your, your humanities degrees aren't really worth much. You've been told that college is the ticket to a spot in the top 20% of American society. You and your parents have certainly paid a price tag that reflects that expectation, right? And on top of that, everybody's told you you can and should find a career doing something you love, something that helps the world, and something that uses the education that you paid so much to get. And then you graduate, and nobody wants more lawyers. Magazines are dying. Newsrooms are dying. Universities aren't hiring. Maybe you want to go to work in, um, or go back to school, grad school or something, right? So you get stuck with a $40,000 debt and the payments are now coming due. It's neither entitled nor bratty nor arrogant to be unhappy with that outcome. He said, this is Noah Smith at No Opinion, his Substack newsletter. He says, I think this is a strong candidate for explaining why unrest exploded among the American elites in the late 2010s. Various polls throughout the decade showed that young Americans with college degrees were a bit less happy at work than their high school educated peers, despite making a lot more money. It's easy to draw a line between that unhappiness and the socialist movement in the U.S. Socialism rapidly became more popular among young Americans in the 2010s, and the Bernie Sanders movement exploded on the national scene. The socialist movement has people from all classes, but overall, it's far from the proletarian movement that is fundamentally a revolt of the professional managerial class. Or at least, the people who expected their education to make them a part of that class. Which, by the way, that's always been sort of the hallmark of socialism, right? The elites are always the ones thinking that they're going to be leading the charge on that stuff. They just, yeah. It's telling that two of the new socialist movement's most passionate crusades have been what? Student debt forgiveness and free college. When socialists with college degrees talk about the working class, it should be pretty clear the class that they're actually describing is themselves. Let me go over here to Dean. Yellow Dean, what's going on? Pete, um, I, yes. boy, I think you covered all the different aspects of it really well. And now I realize that when I speak with you, I'm very grateful, and that's why I'm happy. Ah, uh, but that makes that sense. Either that or you have a very low expectation <laughs> of our conversation's uh, profitability. Please. Uh, anyways, <laughs> what I was thinking, I'm going to have to think about that. Maybe that's why I have low expectations. Anyways. Right. So, you're, so no, this is a great example. Your low expectations of our interaction means that when it comes out just, you know, mediocre, you're super excited. You're happy because you had very low expectations going in. 
Oh, I agree. I think expectations yeah. are, are part of moving ahead in life. And I think what you really have to do is grasp contentment, because if you grasp contentment, expectations become, you know, not the overriding factor. But that isn't really, you know, it goes from what you explained. But what I wanted to comment on was the, uh, you know, the, you said that these kids expect things and that's why they want their money back and everything like that. But in, aren't they really just, they're, it's what they're sold. You said some people yeah. grasp it and some people don't. They're being sold that. So yes. now the, the sellers are paying the price in a way, I think you know, that it has to adjust. I mean, and plus the people that, that had the, that ate those expectations, this is all just part of growing up and understanding that, you know, um, geez, they're not going to pay me $2 million to be a marine biologist because, you know, or something like that. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Marine biology, that's a science. And the sciences, that's where people are now migrating to because that does pay. Um, but uh, what you're talking about is more of a fundamental uh, issue here, uh, which is at a societal level. Yes, pe- people were were sold this. These kids were sold this idea by the society, by all of the people generally in their lives, right? Their the teachers and their parents, uh, they're saying, go to college, that's your ticket. But the people who are doing that selling, right, they are also of that class. And so that's their that, that's their pathway to success that, that they had, and so they're telling that to their kids too. But here's the problem. When the kids don't get the return for the sacrifice. They then question the fundamental structure of the society itself because the trend was things are good, things are good, they know no different, this is my pathway in, and then all of a sudden, boom, I don't have that reality, and now, well, what's the whole system for? And it breeds this kind of revolutionary mindset, and it's not just towards leftism, but in America, in the modern era, it has been. And that's and 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 that that's why they that's why they turn to the these types of programs because the people they're trying to help are themselves right because that's been yeah. their experience with the uh, the failure of the society to fulfill what they thought was the promise to them now that I don't think society made that promise to them I think the people in their lives made that promise to them I didn't make mm-hmm. that promise to them. Um, and I don't think that the electricians and the plumbers and the truck drivers made that promise to them either. But now they're the ones that are going to have to pay off those loans. Yeah, but and, and you know, I, I guess it's, to me it's like a thing like when are you going to tell your child, you know, no, you just can't do it. Or are you going to say, okay, here's a piece of cake. We'll address it further down the road and we'll go through the whole process again. I mean, I, I understand. I don't think, you know, giving them the money solves anything. It just creates more expectations. And then there's more of that that gap you were explaining. Sure. The thing to also keep in mind, this is not, you can't look at this theory, and this is a theory, but you can't look at it in isolation, right? You also have sort of the green shoots theory, right, where everything is cycles, booms and busts, and this is, you know, creative destruction. Life is cycles. In nature, we see it. In in relationships, in our existence, everything is sort of cycles. And uh, I, uh, you know, I I see this as a similar kind of dynamic. But I want the youth to understand that, that that's what it is. Not that it's, oh, it doesn't go right, so get your money back, you know? Right. In life. Yeah. And, you know. Well, I mean, they're, they're uh, the youth. I mean, they're not going to understand anything because they're, they're young. That's kind of the deal. Uh, Dean, I appreciate the call, buddy. Take I hope I met your expectations with this conversation.
talking about the elite overproduction hypothesis. We basically cranked out too many people with humanities degrees. And you get into this other theory about happiness, which is happiness equals expectations minus reality. And so the greater your expectations are of what you will achieve with said humanities degree and uh, the, uh, the further short you fall of that expectation, the more unhappy you're going to be. And uh, educated youth unrest in the late 2010s went beyond socialism. In the 60s, it was the urban poor who rioted. But surveys found that the people who flooded into the streets during the massive protests of summer 2020 were disproportionately college-educated. It's even possible to see wokeness itself as partly an expression of frustration with the stagnant hierarchies of elite, quote-unquote, society in early 2010s America. After all, if the number of spots at university departments and companies and schools and government agencies suddenly stopped growing, well, it meant that young people's upward mobility was blocked. By whom? By an incumbent cohort of older people who, given the greater discrimination and different demographics of earlier decades, they would be disproportionately white and male. And so, systemic racism, right? Frustrated, underemployed elites are uniquely well-positioned to disrupt society as well. They have the talent, well, I'm just reading from Noah Smith. They have the talent, the connections, and the time to organize radical movements and promulgate radical ideas. And they also have the blessing, a lot of times, of their parents. But a society that generates a large cohort of restless, frustrated, talented, highly educated young people is asking for trouble. So, if the elite overproduction hypothesis is broadly correct, then how do we get out of this mess? If happiness equals reality minus expectations, simple math tells us that we basically have two options. You either improve reality or you reduce expectations. Improving reality is difficult, so I submit we reduce everyone's expectations. And I think actually uh, uh, the Hunger Games uh, type of events might actually go a long way in doing this. Right? I mean, think about it. If we tell everybody getting out of college that we're going to put you into some, like, death match or something, and then we don't, well, your expectation is now... Like, way below what the reality is. And so, oh, man, you're going to be happy just to be alive. You'll take any job. But I don't, I don't see any flaw with this idea. Well, yes, maybe long term. Because, like, you could only pull that. You can only pull the lie once. Then you'd actually have to start, like, doing the Hunger Games. All right, there's some kinks to work out in the idea. But I think it's a good, I think it's a good first step. A more feasible strategy, Noah Smith says, is to reset, uh, reset expectations to a more realis- realistic or even pessimistic level. The over-optimistic, angry millennial generation may soon be supplanted by a Generation Z, whose modest expectations echo those of their Generation X parents in the late 70s and early 80s, the best generation, Gen X. Perhaps we should emphasize grit and struggle instead of talking so much about wealth and personal fulfillment. But part of this also goes to the, the point about, you know, working hard, playing by the rules, you'll get ahead. And people don't believe that anymore. People don't believe working hard is what gets you ahead, right? Have you heard of this other thing they're calling the, uh, what is it called, like the quiet resignation or something like that? Quitting quietly or something? Quiet quitting? Have you heard of this? Where people don't quit their job, they just quit working at their job. <laughs> yeah, they just, they just like take up space. 
long-term reforms to reduce the cost of college, career counseling, vocational education, free community college, apprenticeships, all of that. Yeah, fine. It'll make college graduates feel less elite relative to their non-college peers. If the elite overproduction hypothesis is true, he says, then our best bet to calm our age of unrest is to bring our dreams down to earth. Now, that being said, I need to point out here, I'm a big believer in goals. Set goals, put your, give yourself a year, a five-year goal, and then tell other people about what that goal is. And you'd be amazed how many people actually can help you achieve your goals. You just have to let people know. And when you let them know, they help you achieve them. And usually when you write them down, they become real. You tell other people, they become real. And when they become real, people help you, and you actually achieve them much earlier than the time frame you were looking at. I speak from personal experience on multiple fronts, okay? Whether it's financial, whether it's weight loss, it works. It does. It works. Have a goal. Put a deadline on it. Work towards that goal. Here's the other thing. Dr. Ashley Lucas from PhD Weight Loss talks about this as well. This is sort of an Eastern philosophy, I think. But um, you've got three basic uh, states. Uh, You've got growth stagnation, and regression. And when you're in one of those states, it's more likely that you will fall back to the one below it. So if you're in a constant state of growth, even if you're not growing, at least you're just at the stagnation state. But if you're in a stagnation state and you slip, you're going back to regression. And that's bad for obvious reasons. So have goals. Tell people they will help you achieve them. Let's see. Jan says, expectations and happiness. Pete, I expect that if I get enough coffee during the day, I'll be happy. And it has to be real coffee, not this fruity, creamy garbage with the little umbrellas in it like you drink. What? Like I drink. (laughs) I drink black coffee with a stevia squirt. Um, I also expect if I don't get coffee, I'll probably be back in court. So, see, that's it. That's a very low expectation Jan has. And so Jan is able to be happy more regularly. This all it takes is a cup of coffee. Much like Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.